0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: Okay, so the first argument has to do with uh, scientific explanation. I think there's a sort of tension between uh, atheism, or more broadly a kind of naturalistic view of the world, according to which not only is there no God, but there's nothing like God. No angels, no life after death, no souls, nothing like that. Um, That's what I'll call naturalism. Um, But I think there's a tension between that sort of view, even just atheism itself, and scientific explanation. And uh, this is actually a very old thought. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. So as you might have heard, uh, when Aristotle explained natural phenomena, he thought it was necessary to appeal to uh, what we call final causes. Um, so the final cause of the thing is something like its goal or purpose or end, what it is directed towards, what it is meant to do. Uh, so for example, if you happened upon a statue in a city center or something and your tour guide wanted to explain the statue to you, he said, please explain this to me. Um, Aristotle would say to fully explain the thing, um, you've got to cite four causes or four explanations. Uh, the material cause, what it's made out of, uh, the efficient cause, um, how it got here, maybe the artisan who sculpted it. Um, Aristotle thought you should also cite what you call the formal cause, perhaps what this statue is supposed to represent, who it's a statue of. Um, but Aristotle also thought that for a complete explanation, you'd have to tell us what this statue is for, what its purpose was, what it was meant to do, uh, maybe promote civic virtue or something in the case of the statue. Uh, Another common story is that sometime during the scientific revolution, we discovered somehow that there are no final causes, or at least that science isn't in the business of telling us about final causes. Um, It's often unclear how we discovered that, maybe it had something to do with the telescope or something, I don't know. Um, That's a joke, that's impossible. (laughs) Um, But we're told that during the scientific revolution we learned there are no final causes. Um, But Aristotle in his own day was aware of people who rejected this sort of appeal to final causes. There were um, philosophers in his own time who thought that they could explain everything in nature just in terms of a combination of chance and necessity. They believed that there were these natural regularities, um, what we would these days call laws of nature. So there were these regularities in nature and all natural phenomena could be explained in terms of this combination of chance and necessity. So for example, If you were wondering why it's raining, um, Aristotle's opponents might give an explanation like this. Well, we know that heated water must rise. That's one of these regularities. They knew that when water was heated, it rises. And they knew about this other regularity. When it goes up, it gets cooler. So whatever goes up is going to get cooler. And they knew that um, when water cooled, it regularly falls. That's another of these necessities that they would appeal to. Now, Aristotle would say you should go further and say like, what the purpose of this water cycle is, what it's for. Maybe something like um, the good of the crops. But his opponents would say, you know, if it happens to help the crops, that would just be by chance. So his opponents would say, you've explained everything in terms of this combination of necessity and chance. Aristotle also used the example of the development of teeth. Um, so Aristotle would tell you again about the material cause, what teeth are made out of the efficient cause, the formal cause, but Aristotle also thought if you want a complete explanation of the development of human teeth, you need to tell us what teeth are for, what the function is of these teeth, uh, the good of the organism. That's why teeth develop as they do. But his opponents, um, in his own day, said something like this. Um, Aristotle attributes this to Empedocles. Um, so even in his own day, his opponents proposed explanations like this. He said, look, maybe living things arrange themselves with some degree of chance, um, so we get a sort of random development of various kinds of organisms, but then some are more fit to the environment, and so it's going to be this law of nature that they survive. The less fit um, will not survive, will have a tendency not to survive. That's just what it is to be less fit. And so um, Empedocles gave a kind of weird example. <laughs> That's why we saw, for example, this man-faced ox progeny. That's what he said. Empedocles took it as given that there was once an ox with the face of a man. Um, and if that happens, it would be by chance. But such a thing wouldn't be very fit to the environment, so it wouldn't survive. And that's why there aren't more of those. Um, so you see a kind of proto Darwinism going on here, even in Aristotle's own day. But what's interesting is Aristotle's response to these opponents. So Aristotle said... That um, his opponents may be able to explain many things, but something that they leave unexplained are these regularities themselves, these necessities. So his opponents are using these necessities, these natural regularities, um, to explain natural phenomena. But the regularities themselves are left unexplained. But Aristotle said, "On my view, I can not explain the regularities in terms of final causes. So Aristotle thought that his view had an advantage over his opponents. His opponents left something unexplained that Aristotle could explain. Now what I want to argue today is I think things are even worse for um, the opponents of Aristotle here. Things are even worse for people who don't want to appeal to any sort of design or purpose in the universe. Uh, It's not just that they leave something unexplained, though they explain a lot. It's rather that they can't explain anything. So that is uh, what I'm gonna try to convince you of first. Um, There's this tension between atheism and scientific explanation, and it's so bad that it looks like scientific explanation won't be able to work at all. So the argument just has like four components that I'll convince you of in turn. Uh, One of them is that when we do scientific explanation, even today, we're still appealing to these natural regularities, to these necessities. These days we call them laws of nature. Um, So the first step of the argument is to convince you that laws of nature still play a crucial role in scientific explanation. Uh, It's a matter of some controversy among philosophers exactly how scientific explanation works, but as far as I can tell, everybody agrees, laws of nature are going to play a crucial role. Here's a kind of simple model of how scientific explanation works, um, but it will serve our purposes. The idea is this, if you want to explain a natural phenomenon, you want to explain some scientific phenomenon, what you do is you start by citing some initial conditions. How things were maybe 10 minutes ago or 10 days ago or 10 years ago. And then you combine those conditions with some laws of nature. And these laws of nature will have the form of conditionals. So they'll be if-then statements. If conditions are like this, then here's what will result. And so those two things put together will entail the phenomenon that you want to explain. Let me give you an example. Suppose we see some water boiling and we're wondering why. Uh, Well, a scientific explanation might go something like this. Uh, 10 minutes ago, there was such and such a volume of water at this temperature, this pressure. Um, It's got this specific heat. And then we take those initial conditions, combine them with the laws of thermodynamics, which you learn in the chemistry course. And then those two things would entail that the water is boiling 10 minutes later which is that, And that's the explanation, that's why the water is boiling. We have certain initial conditions, Um, we applied a certain amount of heat to that water, and then the laws of nature tell us ah, 10 minutes later it should be boiling. So that's the explanation. Um, Remember the first part of this argument is just to convince you that laws of nature play a crucial role in scientific explanation. So here's the second part of the argument. Uh, the second part of the argument has to do with um, when something could serve as an explanation. And let me give you an example. So suppose uh, we live in a primitive time, but we have access to the Joe Rogan podcast, and so we become convinced that the earth is flat. I <laughs> that's, that's a joke. Rogan doesn't think the earth is flat. But we listen to the Eddie Bravo episodes, and we become convinced. <laughs> we become convinced the earth is flat, but we wonder, why isn't the earth spinning or going up and down um, or kind of rocking back and forth why does the earth seem so stable that's something that you might want to explain if you're into a flat earth and suppose it is suggested to us that here's why the earth is so stable so we want an explanation of the stability of the earth and we're told well the earth is stable because it's being held up by really strong elephants so it looks like we're um a certain explanation is being proposed uh, for the stability of the earth. But of course, the uh, question actually arises in your mind is, where did these elephants come from and why are they so stable? Why aren't these elephants falling or rising or spinning and how did they get there? So although this has the form of an explanation, like it's, these elephants are posited to explain the stability of the earth, the elephants themselves call out for explanation. They call out for explanation. They seem like the sort of things that could be explained, and it would be better if they were explained, and we want an explanation of them. So suppose we're told, oh, those elephants are being held up by a turtle.
2: Uh,
1: The turtle's really strong and can hold those elephants up, and the elephants are holding the earth up. So what I wanna suggest is things haven't gotten any better. We've just added an extra step here, but we haven't yet explained the stability of the earth. We keep deferring the explanation. We keep writing a check as it were. I guess you don't know what that is. <laughs> and I don't know how to say it in terms of Venmo or whatever you use. Um, we keep deferring explanation. We keep sort of um, hoping for an explanation at the next step. But what we're provided in the next step is something that itself needs explanation and can't serve to do its job until it gets explained. And so again, we wonder where did this turtle come from and how? why is he so stable? Um, why isn't he falling or rising or spinning around? And you can see how this could just continue. Maybe you want to pause it like a sea of chaos that the turtle's swimming in. But then we'll wonder where did that sea come from and what's it resting on and why is it so stable? So the idea here is just this. Um, if something is left unexplained, if something calls out for explanation but has no explanation, then it can't serve to explain anything else. So if, for example, you were told the turtle's the bottom, that's the end of the story. There's no sea of chaos or anything. The turtle holds up the elephant, the elephant holds up the earth. What I'm suggesting uh, for your consideration is if the turtle is left unexplained, it's the sort of thing that calls out for explanation, and if it has no explanation, then it doesn't really explain how the elephants are there. And so if the elephants aren't really explained, we don't know how they're stable, they can't serve to explain the stability of the earth. So the principle in general is something like this. If something, anything, call it A, if it calls out for explanation but doesn't have one, then it can't serve to explain anything else. And when I say it calls out for explanation but has none, I don't just mean we don't know what the explanation is. In the case of the turtle, it's not that we just don't know what the turtle's resting on. Rather, we're told it's not resting on anything. There is no further explanation. That's where the explanation stops.
2: So what I'm saying is if that happens,
1: if we've got something that calls out for explanation but has none, then that thing can't explain anything else. Here's just an example. Suppose we happen upon a broken window um, and that's something that I actually want explained, how did this window break? If we're told straight away there just simply is no explanation, again, it's not that we don't know the explanation, it's rather that there literally is none. This is really unsatisfying, to just be told the window's broken, there's no reason why. It, it's just broken, end of story. That's really unsatisfying. If rather we're given the beginnings of an explanation, something that holds the promise of an explanation, like what there's this brick on the ground, Looks like the window was broken by the brick. This looks like it has a structure of an explanation, but if we ask, well, where did the brick come from? Um, How did the brick get here? How did did it get the uh, necessary momentum to break the window, how did that happen? If we're told there's literally no explanation of that, then we just got turtle, you might say. We just did the turtle thing again, but with the brick. We wanted an explanation of the broken window, we were given as an explanation something that itself calls out for explanation, and if we're told there literally is no explanation, then I say the window, the broken window, is not been explained. It's just like the turtle case. All right, so that's the general principle, and that's step two in this argument, that there's a problem for atheism and scientific explanation. The first step was scientific explanation requires laws of nature, Here's the second step. And you can see how this general principle would apply to laws of nature. So if laws of nature are the sort of thing that call out for explanation, and if they don't have one, then we can't actually use them to explain anything else. Which, remember, is something that we wanna do in science. We wanna use the laws of nature plus the initial conditions to explain natural phenomena. So here's, Here's the threat that's sort of approaching atheism. If laws of nature are the sort of thing that call out for explanation but have none, then we can't use them in scientific explanation. So now all that's left is to convince you that laws of nature do call out for explanation, but on atheism, there isn't one. And then you'll see that, hey, laws of nature can't serve to explain anything else, so scientific explanation is not gonna work. Okay, so why think that laws of nature call out for explanation? Well, here's just one example of a law of nature. Here's the universal law of gravitation. It says if you've got two massive bodies, they're going to attract each other with a certain force. And if you want to know um, what this force will be, you multiply the masses together, divide by the square of the distance between them. Take that result and multiply it by its gravitational constant. And there's a value of the gravitational So I mentioned all this just to get you to appreciate that this is the sort of thing that seems to call out for further explanation. There's a lot here that we would like to know more about. It seems like this could have been different in various ways. Uh, we want to know why it, why the universal law of gravitation has this form and not some other form. Why do we multiply the masses together rather than add them? Why do we divide by the square of the distance between them instead of the cube of the distance between them? Something like that. And most of all, why does the gravitational constant have exactly this value instead of slightly greater, or slightly less? These are things that seem like they could have been different. And so we want to know, why are they this way rather than that way? It's sort of like the elephants that were proposed to hold up the earth. The elephants could have been different in many ways. It could have been a different animal. The elephants could have been bigger, smaller, greater in number, smaller in number, stronger or weaker. you we want to know how many got there. Something similar is happening here. We have a lot of questions about this law of nature. Why is it this way rather than some other way? So it looks like laws of nature are the sorts of things that call out for explanation. They could be explained. And in principle, it would be better if they were explained. That'd be a virtue of the theory if it did explain the laws of nature. Um, So all that's left next is to convince you that if anything is true, these laws of nature have no explanation. Okay, so again, just a quick recap. It's sort of like the broken window example. If we have some scientific phenomenon, some natural phenomenon, like Mars is occupying a certain position, if we're told that there's literally no explanation for that, that's unsatisfying. We don't like that at all. So we want to do some science and figure out what the explanation is for, Current position of Mars. If we're told that, oh, I could explain that in terms of the laws of nature plus some initial conditions, that looks promising. This is the start of an explanation. It's like being told that, oh, the flat Earth is on the back of some elephants, or, oh, the window was broken by this script. But if, as a matter of fact, this thing that's playing a role of the explanation, if that has no further explanation, then I think we're in trouble. We haven't really explained the position of Mars. If we say there literally is no further explanation of these laws of nature, then again, we just got to roll, as we say. Um, and now will be back. Okay. Um, one time I made a meme to explain this argument. Here's the meme version of the argument. So you might like look down your nose, you might look down your nose at people who give you that um, explanation of the earth, ah, stupid savages, you can't build explanations on things that themselves would be explained.
2: But many of us are
1: in awe of the success of science, even though some of us believe that these things
2: that explain scientific phenomena have less <clears>
1: than <throat> And the idea in this meme is that's really the same thing. It's just a fancier version of the turtle example. Okay, so last step in the argument is to convince you that um, if is true, then laws of nature have no explanation. We're using them when we explain scientific phenomena, but they're the sorts of things that call out for explanation, as we saw with that universal law of gravitation. If they have no explanation, then it's just like the turtle case. So why do you think they have no explanation? Well, there's a few options available to the atheist. One is just to admit, yeah, natural regularities, laws of nature, Um, not one of them has any further explanation. You might call this simple brute foundationalism. So when philosophers use the word brute, uh, they're not talking about like um, savage animals or anything like that. They just mean literally has no further explanation, unexplained. So one option is just to say of any natural regularity, it has no further explanation. So um, I hope you can see that's not going to help us um, avoid the argument that I'm sketching here. That's just to admit, yeah, um, no natural regularity has a further explanation. Although it's the sort of thing that calls out for explanation, it doesn't have one. And if that principle that I showed you earlier is true, that means we can't use natural regularities to explain anything else. But I don't think this is a very common view. I think the more common view among naturalistic philosophers, among atheistic philosophers, is what you might call an extended brute foundationalism, according to which some regularities, some natural regularities, do have further explanations in terms of more fundamental laws, more fundamental regularities. So maybe, for example, we could um, explain the laws of genetics, the laws of biology, in terms of more fundamental laws, maybe the laws of chemistry. And maybe we could explain those laws of chemistry in terms of more fundamental laws, laws of physics. But the idea is eventually this stops. We get to the most fundamental level, the true fundamental laws of nature. And since they're fundamental, there is no deeper explanation. So this little schematic picture might remind you of something. That's right. It's the turtle again. (laughs) I mean, this is the same sort of structure. We wanted to know why the laws of biology are the way they are. We're told about the laws of chemistry. We want to know why those are the way they are. We're told about the laws of physics. But eventually, you get to the very bottom. And on this view, when we ask, okay, so why are those fundamental laws of physics the way that they are? The answer is, um, there is no. There is no further answer. There is no further explanation. That's just the way it is. The earth rests on the back of some elephants. They rest on the back of a turtle. And that's just the way things are. So Sean Carroll actually says that, that that's just the way they are. That's like a Sean Carroll line with respect to these fundamental laws of physics. You can find the same sort of view in Bertrand Russell. Um, some YouTube videos of uh, Richard Feynman saying the same thing. So I think this is a pretty common view. And again, the worry is it's the same structure here. So because this is itself unexplained, the lack of explanation kind of works its way up the structure. So that nothing in the structure is truly explained. We kept deferring explanation, but we never arrived at an explanation. All right. So let me tell you about an alternative, but this one's not available to the atheist, I think. So it has a similar structure to extended brute foundationalism, but at the bottom, um, we don't have something that's unexplained. We don't have an unexplained natural regularity. So, on this view, which I think is what most supernaturalists hold, what most theists hold. Laws of nature may have explanations in terms of deeper laws, and then those have explanations in terms of the deepest laws. But if you ask a theist why the fundamental laws are the way that they are, the theist, or the Aristotelian, could give you an answer in terms of Aristotelian's final causes. Or, if you were Plato, you'd cite like a divine craftsman Or if you're a Christian, you will talk about God. And the explanation here is something like uh, the reason the fundamental laws of physics are the way that they are is because God made them that way. Why did God make them that way? Uh, So as to allow for a life-permitting universe. Why did God want a life-permitting universe? Because that's good. And then that's the end of the story. That's where the explanation is. But there's an important difference, the explanation does end eventually, but where it ends here is with something like a necessary moral truth that a life-permitting universe is good. It's good to have sentient life. That's a good thing. And whereas over here with the turtle and on the atheist view, we end with something that calls out for explanation but has none, we end the explanation here with something that doesn't call out for further explanation. You might say it explains itself, or it's just not the sort of thing that needs further explanation. It's obvious. It's good to have a universe that allows for sentient life. That seems obvious. It doesn't require further explanation. Okay, there's a couple other positions in logical space that the atheist could pursue, and in the Q&A if you want to talk about these, um, I've got some reasons against these as well. One option is just turtles all the way down, I think, what if for every turtle there's another turtle? <laughs> Would that suffice to explain in the first turtle?
2: <laughs>
1: or, um, we might loop back, my explanation might loop back. So now if the earth is explained by the elephants, the elephants are standing on the turtle, and the turtles is standing on the earth. <laughs> so that's why the earth is standing. We sort of bootstrap our way into a stable earth. But in just a time, I'm just going to mention those. Uh, if you want to bring them up in the Q&A, we can. Okay, so here's the argument. We call this one the explanation argument. And I use a lot of colors. I'm kind of regretting it now, but here we go. So premise one says, any scientific explanation can succeed, but only if it involves a natural regularity, the law of nature. That was the first thing I tried to convince you of. Scientific explanation requires laws of nature. And then we talked about a general principle applying to any explanation. Any explanation can succeed, but only if it doesn't involve anything that calls out for explanation but lacks one. If the explanation cites or posits something that calls out for explanation but lacks one, that explanation doesn't work. That's like the bottom turtle. Okay, so from one and two it follows that a scientific explanation can succeed, only if it involves a natural regularity, that was from premise one. But also from premise two, this regularity better not call out for explanation while lacking one. Okay, and then the last thing I tried to convince you of was if atheism's true, then uh, these natural regularities do seem to call out for explanation. There are sorts of things that could in principle be explained, and it would be better if they were, um, but they lack explanation on the view. So you can see what follows from three and four is if atheism is true, no scientific explanation can succeed. So just real quick, just to like hammer the point home. Um, if you think scientific explanations do succeed as I do, I love science. Then from five and six, it follows that atheism is false. I will display this whole argument at the end, so I don't feel like you need to scribble it down. Um, But that is the first argument. That's the explanation argument. Okay, uh, here's a second argument. This one has to do with uh, moral knowledge. Can we know anything about morality if it isn't true? (laughs) Just gonna check the time, all right. So, um, quick question, what is knowledge? Well, here's something that's pretty uncontroversial among philosophers, although not totally uncontroversial. But it's pretty uncontroversial to say that in order to know something, it has to be true. You can't know something that's false. You can think you know something that's false, but you don't really know it if it's false. And also, in order to know something, you've at least got to believe that it's true. How could you know that something's true if you don't even believe that it's true? You've got to at least believe it in order to know it. Okay, but truth and belief isn't enough um, because you might be right by luck. You might just make a lucky guess. So, for example, this is a real horoscope for this week. I checked this out this week. Here's a horoscope. And this horoscope says, share your ideas and discussions or find people you enjoy listening to talk. You enjoy listening to talk. This is a rough Share your ideas and discussions about the big topics on your mind right now. New flavors may appeal to you also, the pleasure principle is in your travel zone. I don't totally know what that means. Is that, is that naughty? It sounds bad. <laughs> but suppose I read this, and I came to believe, oh, I'm gonna travel and share my ideas about the big topics on my mind right now. And then, look, it happened. So I ended up with a true belief on the basis of this horoscope. But you might think, I, I, can't really, I couldn't really know that that was true on the basis of this horoscope, but only because I'm not even a Taurus. You know Full disclosure, I'm not a Taurus. And also horoscopes don't work. Um, so I couldn't really know that that was true if I believed it on the basis of a horoscope. Even if I had a true belief. Even if I truly believed I would travel and share my ideas about big topics on my mind right now. Okay, so true belief's not enough. Also, you might think, well, the problem in that case is uh, horoscopes aren't a good reason to believe anything. But even if we add that you had a good reason, even that's not enough. Um, And here's a simple case to show why. I'm trying to pick an example of a roughly corresponding frame time, but I thought we were going to start at 6. Might add. But suppose it was 6.35, and I happened to look at a clock that I had every reason to believe was accurate, um, and it said 6.35. But suppose this clock stopped this morning at 6.35, and so I'm looking at a stopped clock. But uh, as I say, stopped clocks are correct twice a day, and I happens to look at it um, at a time in order to give me a true belief. So here I've got a true belief, supposing it was 6.35 when I looked at it, um, and I've got a good reason. You know, so it was in a classroom, it's the sort of clock that you can reasonably take to be reliable, Or maybe it was my own personal thought that I have a good history with. So I've got a good reason I've got a true belief, but that's not enough for knowledge. So what seems to be missing in these sorts of cases, I suggest to you, glossing over a long history of epistemology, here's the answer in case you were wondering. Um, What's missing in these sorts of cases is the right sort of connection between your belief and the truth. In the case of a horoscope, I believed that I would travel and share my ideas on the basis of the horoscope. But the reason the horoscope said that wasn't because it was true. It's because the writer of that horoscope had to come up with something or whatever. Same thing with the stopped clock case. When I believed that it was 6.35 because I looked at a stopped clock, um, I hold the belief because the clock says it's 6.35. But the clock doesn't say it's 6.35 p.m. because it is 6.35 p.m. The clock says it's 635 p.m. Sorry, the clock just says it's 635. And it says that because it was 635 when it stopped. 635 a.m. So in both of those cases, I don't hold my belief because it's true. The truth doesn't enter into the explanation. The explanation of the horoscope belief doesn't mention anything about the truth of the belief. The explanation of my belief about the time doesn't mention that the belief was true. So that's the problem. And so what I recommend to you is the view that knowledge is just believing something because it's true. So you've got to believe it, and it's got to be true, and the connection that has to hold between your belief and the truth is this sort of explanatory connection. You've got to hold the belief because it's true. When we explain why you hold this belief, the explanation uh, must crucially mention the truth. So, to just take a simple example, I believe there's a piece of paper on this table. Why do I believe that? It's on the basis of a certain kind of experience I'm having right now. Um, I'm having an experience as of a paper on the table. Why am I having that experience? A complicated story about, like, my digital cortex and my retina and, like, light bouncing off the surface? Why is all of that happening? Well, the explanation would have to mention the fact that there really is a piece of paper on the table. It's causing the light to reflect. In So my belief was that there's a piece of paper on the table, and the truth of that belief figured into the explanation. So ultimately, I hold that belief because it's true. Part of the explanation is there really is a piece of paper on the table. Okay, so I'm gonna recommend that to you as the correct view of knowledge. So what I'm gonna do next is try to convince you that um, if atheism's true, there's a problem with uh, moral knowledge. It looks like we might not be able to know anything about morality. There may be moral facts, if atheism is true, but we won't be able to know what they are. And that's because of some uh, disturbing facts about evolution. Um, there's what evolution looks like. Another joke. So, okay. Here's, um, here are the disturbing facts about evolution. Let me just tell you uh, about these facts in the case of incest. So, when you imagine having incest, you feel gross, right? You feel gross? That's a good sign. You feel disgusted when you think about that. That means um, your brain is functioning properly because we're actually hardwired. Humans are hardwired to produce that sort of disgust response when we entertain the prospect of incest. So, why is that? Why do we have that sort of disgust response? We're also hardwired to be afraid of this shape. Did you know that?
2: Like
1: snakes. Like, that's right. <laughs> you got it. Um, like snakes, um, and that's because snakes were such a problem for our ancestors that humans. Um, I guess it probably happened before humans, but creatures who had a hardwired fear response to any shape like this tended to survive and have more babies. Um, even if it was a false positive, it's better to be safe than sorry. So that's why we have this hardwired response to that sort of shape. We also have a hardwired hard response to um, entertaining the prospect of incest. And you could probably think of what the evolutionary explanation of that is. Why is it that creatures would evolve to sort of disgust response to incest? That's because inbreeding is a really bad idea, genetically. Did you know that? Should write that down. If that's the only thing you take away, <laughs> let it be that, because that's probably the most important thing I'll say. Um, incest is a really bad idea genetically, it increases the odds that the offspring will have certain, um, all sorts of genetic defects. Um, and so, there was a survival advantage, a reproductive advantage to creatures who had this sort of hardwired wired disgust response. Okay, so the worry is, once you hear that story, um, it starts looking like Okay, I need to be careful how I say this, because I don't really endorse what I'm about to say. I'm just, Jeez. Re- just reporting to you. Um, you might start worrying that the only reason you believe that incest is wrong is because it was maladaptive in ancestral environments. It still is maladaptive, but the reason we have this disgust response is because it was maladaptive in ancestral environments. Notice that nowhere in that explanation did we have to mention that incest really is wrong, which it is. Which it is. Write that down too. Write that down too, (laughs) this is being recorded, I want to go on the record, anti-incest, incest Um, incest really is wrong, Um, but that doesn't seem to figure into the explanation of why we believe it, the evolutionary explanation anyway. Okay, so that's the worry, here's the explanation expressed by some prominent scientists and philosophers, we got E.O. Wilson and Michael Roos here saying... They suppose that instead of evolving from Savannah-dwelling primates, we had evolved in a very different way. If like the termites, that was E.O. Wilson's favorite critic, if like the termites we needed to dwell in darkness, eat each other's feces, gross, cannibalize the dead, gross, our epigenetic rules would be very different from what they are now. Our minds would be strongly prone to extol such acts as beautiful and moral we find it morally disgusting to live in the open air, to dispose of body waste, to bury the dead. Termites, ayatollahs would surely declare such things to be against the will of God. And the conclusion they draw from this is, ethics does not have the objective foundation that our biology leads us to think that it has. And they try to convince you of this conclusion by asking you to consider that we had evolved differently. So as a matter of fact, inbreeding was not a good reproductive strategy and so we evolved to be disgusted by it. But what if the rules of genetics had been different, or our ancestral environment had been different, so that inbreeding was a really good way to have more and healthier babies? Then what would creatures believe about incest? They would think it was a good idea. That's the thought. If our moral beliefs are being delivered to us by a little bit of our brain that was subject to the influence of natural selection, and all it was interested in is calling us how to have more and healthier babies. Then if incest had been advantageous, we would have believed it was uh, good. If we had evolved to occupy the environmental niche that termites occupy, we would have thought that was good. Here's a similar quote from uh, the man himself, Charles Darwin. He says, if for instance, to take an extreme case, men were reared under precisely the same conditions as hive bees, There can hardly be a doubt that our unmarried females would, like the worker bees, think it a sacred duty to kill their brothers. And mothers would strive to kill their fertile daughters. And no one would think of their kid. So it's a similar sort of thought. Our moral beliefs seem to be shaped to a disturbing degree by what was advantageous in our ancestral environment and what was advantageous for us to do in the niche that we evolved to occupy. So that if we had evolved to occupy the niche of the bees, we'd have a very different sort of moral code. Our brain would tell us very different things about what's attractive and what's repulsive, about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Okay, so that's the worry. Let me try to formalize it a little bit with another meme picture thing. So today we've got got this guy saying, hmm, today I will believe that incest is wrong. And suppose he succeeds, so that's his belief, incest is wrong. Now, remember, knowledge is believing something because it's true. In order to know that incest is wrong, we want an explanation of that belief, an explanation of how that belief arose, to mention the fact that incest is wrong. That's what we would like. We would like an explanation of that belief to entail the truth of the belief. Then you could count as knowing that incest is wrong. But when you hear these evolutionary explanations of how we got our moral beliefs the worry is there was this other influence on us, um, this other influence on our moral beliefs, namely natural selection. And all that natural selection was interested in is reproductively advantageous strategies. So, the reason natural selection gave us a little bit of our brain that tells us that incest is wrong isn't because it really is wrong. Maybe it is, but that's not why our brain uh, makes us feel disgusted when we think about it. Um, The reason why we have that discussed reaction is, again, it was reproductively disadvantageous in our ancestral environment. Okay, so we've got a kind of competition between these two explanations. And only one of them is going to allow for knowledge, only the top one. If it turned out that this was really the full explanation, then we don't really know that incest is wrong. Can I just, I just feel like repeating really quick that incest is wrong? All right. Okay, so here's the worry. Um, Could we have an explanation of our moral beliefs that entails that the moral beliefs are true? How do we form our moral beliefs? Um, What's the correct view about moral epistemology? How do we form our moral beliefs? How might we discover these moral truths? Well, I think there's a few options. One is a naturally evolved moral faculty a little bit of our brain that is the product of natural selection, and it's in the business of telling us what would be reproductively advantageous and reproductively disadvantageous. Um, So in ancestral environments, really advantageous to find good sources of energy, sugar and fat, so our brain gives us rewards when we do that. Um, Really disadvantageous to engage in in inbreeding. so our brain turns off sexual attraction to anyone who was around when we were young. That's how the brain does it, by the way. The brain can't peer into other people's cells and see if they're related to you. So it just turns off sexual attraction to anyone who was around when you were young. Okay, so that might be a source of moral beliefs. We've got these sort of hardwired disgust and attraction responses to stimuli. Another possibility is uh, God told us what's good and bad, right and wrong. Another possibility is we've got a way of discovering certain kinds of truths. Truths about logic, truths about mathematics, and maybe truths about morality, but this faculty that we have of rational intuition is importantly very different from how this naturally evolved moral faculty would work. It doesn't work by delivering any sort of disgust or attraction response, it gives us a kind of direct access to the truth, a sort of unmediated access to moral truth. Okay. Now I just want to ask, which of these are viable options if atheism is true? Which one could an atheist, which of these could an atheist reasonably accept? So I think we can all agree that divine revelation's out. Right? That one's out. If there's no God, then there's no God to tell us what's right and wrong, good and bad. This one's a little trickier. <laughs> um, if you haven't taken any classes with Professor Dan Corman, you should. He's a professor here. Um, and he's a big fan of rational intuition. And so it's a little trickier here to say whether atheist could accept rational intuition or whether there's some sort of tension there. Um, so I'll just repeat that if we had this sort of faculty, it would be different in important ways from that naturally evolved moral faculty. It wouldn't operate via any sort of intermediary and it wouldn't be the result of natural selection. We would have a sort of unmediated, direct access to uh, these moral truths. And a lot of philosophers, a lot of atheistic philosophers think that would be weird or spooky, certainly incongruous with atheism. And so um, a lot of atheistic philosophers, most, I would say, reject that as a source of possible moral knowledge. So all that's left is this moral faculty that's only in the business of telling us uh, what's Reproductively advantageous and disadvantageous. Okay, so remember the worry was, we want our belief that incest is wrong to count as knowledge, but the only way that's going to happen is if the explanation of why we hold it entails the truth. Uh, But it looks like that would happen only if we had access to divine revelation, or if we had this faculty of rational intuition. Then we'd be okay. But if the atheist can't reasonably accept those sorts of things... For sure not divine revelation, that's flat out inconsistent with atheism. But even rational intuition seems to be in tension with atheism. If we had that sort of faculty, you might think that itself would count as evidence against atheism. Looks like this is the only reasonable option for the atheist. This is how we form our moral beliefs. This naturally evolved moral faculty. But then you can see the problem. This isn't the sort of influence that's going to allow for knowledge. Because the explanation of our moral beliefs doesn't require that they be true. It only requires that they be reproductively advantageous. The theist, on the other hand, is in a better position because the theist can accept both divine revelation and rational intuition. The theist may also grant that there were these other influences on our beliefs. We are subject to various biases and influences that aren't really interested in the truth, that can happen. But as long as your belief has enough of the right sort of influence, that's enough for knowledge. Let me just give you a really quick example, and then I'll be done. So suppose you're on a jury, and your your job is to figure out whether this this defendant is guilty or not. You're presented with some really extremely good evidence that the defendant is guilty. It's just a knockdown, conclusive case. But suppose also, as a matter of fact, you are subject to all sorts of racial and gender biases, and those are influencing your belief as well. Can you know that this defendant is guilty? You've got really, really good evidence, but you're also subject to these bad sorts of influences, these bad biases. What I would say is, it depends, but it could happen as long as you're basing your belief on the good influences and those influences were strong enough, as it were, then even though you're subject to these other sorts of biases, you could still know that the defendant is guilty. So that's sort of the position of the theist. As long as um, the theist is basing uh, his moral beliefs on those good sorts of sources. It may be okay that these other sorts of bad biases or influences are operating. Okay, so here's the argument, and then I'll stop. Step one is if atheism is true, then all of my moral beliefs come by way of a naturally evolved moral faculty. At least that is the reasonable thing to believe if atheism is true. And if that's right, if all of my moral beliefs are coming by way of a naturally evolved moral faculty then I hold my moral beliefs because they're adapted, not because they're true. Okay, so from one and two, it follows that if atheism is true, then I hold my moral beliefs because they're adapted, not because they're true. If you accept the correct view about knowledge, namely that it's believing something because it's true, then what follows from three and four is... If atheism's true, I don't know anything about morality. Okay, and then you can see how the argument would proceed from there. If you're willing to affirm that you do know some things about morality, then what's going to follow is that atheism's false. And do you know anything about morality? Well, I think once upon a time, um, the worry was that college students were um, afflicted with moral relativism, but what I've heard lately, in my own sense of the situation, is that if anything, um, these days we're suffering from an overabundance of moral certainty. And so it seems very common for people to think that they do know at least some things about morality. And I think they're right. I think they do know some things about morality. I think you know some things about morality. So I think you should accept premise six. But then again, it follows that atheism's false. All right, so here's the recap of both arguments. And I'll just leave those displayed on the screen, and I'm happy now to take your questions. Thank you for your attention. So for
2: your first argument, uh, you did a good job explaining why the teleological cause wouldn't have anything, wouldn't call out for explanation? But it seems to presuppose that there's some agent that can implement that teleological cause, that can say, I want to uh, make the universe so that it, it works in this way. Doesn't,
1: doesn't that agent cause explanation, or am I missing some part of Oh, All right, so the explanation is going to be if you were sort of platonist and say there's a who's responsible for making the universe or if you're in a the Aristotelian, and say there's a sort of Noose, this ultimate good at which all things aim. And you're wondering, well, isn't that sort of like the elephant or the turtle? Um, and although the reasons that this agent was acting in line don't need further explanation, doesn't the agent need further explanation? Why is there a agent? Okay, uh, I think that's a good question. And yeah, if you believed that, if, if the theist held that God is the sort of thing that calls out for explanation, um, that's a sort of contingent thing, the way that the laws of nature are, the way that elephants are, and turtles, then I think you're right, there would be a serious problem there. Just as a matter of fact, um, though, theistic uh, philosophers of religion tend to think of God as a necessary being, um, sort of being that could not have failed to exist. And so, although we may be ignorant of this fact, and we might psychologically wonder, um, what reasons are there to believe that God exists, um, that's different from saying that God is the sort of thing that requires further explanation. He's a sort of contingent thing like elephants or turtles um, requires further explanation. So I'm just going to issue you a sort of promissory note and say there, there are a lot of reasons given throughout history to think that God is a sort of necessary being that either explains his own existence um, or does not require further explanation. Um I think in of time to read it uh, but I'll just quickly add. Uh, it's sort of like, I guess, I mean, here's a possible meeting you might have. Um, you might think that if if you believe in numbers, which I do, and you should too, um, they're not the sorts of things that call out for further explanation. So I'm just giving you like another example of a thing you might believe exists, but doesn't seem amenable to further explanation. Like the number two, which we? we we know that it exists, but if I ask you, like, um, where did it come from? You might think that is, that's an ill form question. You've misunderstood the sort of thing I'm talking about. Um, or if you wonder, why isn't it some other way, like, why isn't it odd? Well, again, that's a misunderstanding. It could not have been all. Day. It could not have failed to exist. So God is thought by theistic philosophy to be something like that. Okay, were there
0: other hands. Um, yeah, so we really have two questions. So uh, one is for your second argument, um, how would you find to somebody who says that, uh, okay, you said that we have this sort of uh, adaptive moral sense, we um, have this feeling of disgust, but the reality, and we can pretty easily see this, is that our feeling of disgust is not simply measuring what was adaptive for our ancestors, but rather has quite a bit of social construction going on, right? In your example of the person in the jury, a person might have racial and gender biases toward a person, and that can manifest itself as a sort of fundamental feeling of disgust, and that's wrong, right? And that's not there because it was evolutionarily adapted to be racist or sexist, right? It's because, you know, we have this sort of community-minded... We have these social constructions, right? And so one thing might be that, okay, we have this sense of disgust, but really this is a way for us to, as a community, arrive at what our moral knowledge is, because in some sense, what an atheist philosopher might say is the things that are moral facts are that there's something about a community process in that. There's something about us acting as a community. And it's not just an individual knowing something, but it's about how we act towards each other. Uh, so that's one question. And just to quickly test another question okay. for your explanation argument, um, how uh, I can sort of hit the lead, summarize this why does the need for explanation not itself call out for explanation? So how do I know, uh, you know, the, the scientists uh, might say that, okay, these, you know, in your brick window example, certainly the brick is unexplained, but it is explained that the brick is what broke the window, and the brick has no explanation, okay, that seems bad. Um, but certainly there's something in that story that's beyond just an unexplained broken window, there's a relationship between the window and the brick. And the way that scientists, I think, or the scientists that I know um, explain Laws of nature is that they are models that work in particular regimes. So that law of gravitation you wrote down doesn't actually work at very small scales or at very large scales, only at particular scales, and it is something about our method of doing explanation. Um, but when it comes down to it, there's something very unempirical going on, even at the level of like modus ponens. If I say the proposition P is true, P then Q is true, therefore Q is true. That is something that is completely unempirical and not something that I can look at and see happening. Um, that's something that
1: has much to do with the way that humans think. So how do I know, how do I explain that? Okay, (laughs) let me try to remember your first suggestion real quick. You had asked about uh, other sorts of feelings of disgust we may have um, that are shaping our beliefs, maybe even our moral beliefs, but these feelings of disgust don't seem to have an explanation in terms of what was adapted in the physical environment, rather, the explanation will cite sort of um, social values or they were given to us by our society. So you pointed out the dark things like that. Yeah, so I guess uh, maybe you could think about this a long time. Just trying to figure out which
0: oh is it I'm trying to figure out which premise we're calling the question. I'd say mostly premise two. Um my beliefs, you know, because they are adaptive is a little bit reductive it's it's uh Basically, somewhere between one and two, you see if I have a naturally evolved moral faculty, that all of those judgments are precisely those which are adaptive, um, but they're indirectly adaptive in the sense that we've developed this sense of disgust to be something that can be socially important. To yeah, well, let me
1: just, are you gonna know, respond for me, or do <laughs> you just want to no, no,
0: no. I just wanted to ask if
2: I was, if I, if I was hearing your question, right? Which is, so, I initially got done is, and let's say, for example, the second argument, right? Uh, you're setting these things, uh, you know, if this is true, this is true, this is true, it's true, it's true, it's true. Uh, you know, knowledge is believing something because it's true, so if it is true, I don't know anything, but some I can know, something about right, so therefore it means false. I thought you were referring
0: to that as, like, that's just like the way humans think we don't know if that's actually true. Yeah, that's, true. Uh, that's more my second question.
2: Okay, um, let
1: me try to respond to the first question. So you point out that um, some of our moral beliefs don't seem to be explained in terms of any sort of hard-wired mechanism. I chose incest because it's kind of an unusual example where it looks like we have a hard-wired incest avoidance mechanism. But you're right, a lot of our moral beliefs come by way of um, early teaching and socialization. Um, maybe that's how we develop a kind of racial animus or kind of um, sexism um, for those people who have not uh, maybe that's how I got it. Um, through early teaching and socialization, or through other sort of social influences. And then, um, the idea, I'm still thinking, how does this NBGR so far I agree. I'm just wondering, what's the problem? Is your suggestion like, well, if I were to give you a complete explanation of those beliefs, the ones that were given to me by social taboos or early teaching and socialization, the explanation would have to cite the truth of the belief. That's
0: right. Something like that, and in particular, if, you know, if, if, as an atheist philosopher might say, um, that it is actually good that we decide our um, moral beliefs as a community, and this evolved mechanism is actually something that, um, that nevertheless actually helps us discover in the same way that our evolved ability to reason, helps us discover the truth, our evolved sense of um, empathy and uh, social, you know, being able to socially construct morality is actually something which has allowed us to discover the reality about how we should treat each other.
1: Well, um, I'll just say this, I mean, it sounds like maybe what you're proposing would, you sort of presenting a challenge to the evolutionary psychologist, like explaining this um, feature of human beliefs in terms of your evolutionary story. And as far as I know, the explanation I give of those sorts of moral beliefs that we get, not through hardwired mechanisms, but through social teaching, um, is this. Uh, you should think of natural selection operating not just at the level of the individual, but also at the level of the population. And so um, populations are sort of competing with each other for resources and so on. And they adopt certain taboos, um, they encourage certain kinds of behavior, forbid so other kinds of behavior, and they police these in various ways. And they give those beliefs into children through early teaching socialization. socialization. This is the explanation I've heard. Of, I'm not endorsing you this. I'm about to say that early children are docile, which means they're, they're open to um, suggestion, they're very open to suggestion to the um, And they believe pretty much anything you tell them. Um, and there's an no evolutionary explanation for why that's true. Um, and so that's how populations get these taboos that are ban- that are advantageous at the population level. Into the individuals, even
2: though it's not very white.
1: And so I think the evolutionary psychologist would say, I will still be able to explain the origin of all these moral beliefs, even the ones that came by way of early and socialization, in terms of what was advantageous, although in this case not of being digital, but at the level to
2: the individual, but level to the population.
1: So I'll just give you one example. Um, there was once safe population that adopted as a sort of rule, um, that had a taboo against getting married and having children. Um, they were called the shapers. They were sort of like the Quakers, but they were the shapers. You, you may not have heard of the shapers, but they are no longer any shapers, because this moral rule that they adopted at the population level was not very reproductively advantageous, and they didn't have any babies, and they didn't reproduce, and so now they're And so I think the evolutionary explanation is, um, populations are sort of exploring um, Possible sets of moral beliefs, and some of the moral systems that they are like at are advantageous and others are disadvantageous. And here's the complete explanation of why you believe what you do, even when influenced by society. And none of it mentions the truth of belief. It's also in terms of its
2: advantages and disadvantageous.
1: And so I guess you're free to deny that, but I would just say I think now your quarrel your is with the evolutionary psychologists, um, and not with me. You're saying there's some feature of human existence that can't be explained in evolutionary terms. And so I would just like refer you to them and get some popcorn. <laughs> question two was, um, well, so I heard this question in there, why does the need for explanation not call out for explanation? Yes. So why is the fact that something needs explanation, why doesn't that need explanation? Um, Well, I I mean, I'll just say maybe it does, and I tried to say something about what it is for something to call out for explanation, why something will call out for explanation. And uh, I'll be honest, I don't have a super clear idea of what it is, but I think that's something to do with contingency If something could have been otherwise, then uh, it calls out for explanation. It's the sort of thing that could be explained. There could be something that explains why it is the way that it is rather than some other way. So if, the fact that something calls out for explanation does itself need an explanation. Very I just feed it to you. So maybe that's satisfying to you. So um, I think I was wondering which, which premise would we challenging. It wasn't super clear to me which one. But hopefully, what I just said
2: was satisfying in some way. Okay, uh, I don't remember who I had I think, is that Lucia mask?
1: I don't know what color it is question was quick. Um, you said that uh, the atheists
0: don't have access to kind of rational intuition. Um, I guess like of the three uh, things that you have written up there, um, I think like something like something like a Kant's categorical imperative sort of thing kind of seems to me like they fall that category of three. Um, I guess
1: if we come to know by way of rational
0: intuition.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, like of the three things it seems closest to something that I would call rational intuition, um, um, is that like, I guess what do you put that in like, you just like reject it because it's rational intuition and you just can't have that? Yeah, I think Clark recommends that to us as something that she could know to be true by way of rational intuition. Mm-hmm. But rational intuition is supposed to be the method by which we discover these sorts of truths if they in Archer. Um And my thought was, Here's how that sort of, um, faculty would have to operate. It would have to be, um, very much unlike our other senses. It would be like a sixth sense. But whereas our other senses operate via kind of reports or intermediaries. So like my eyes get information about the world and then they give me an experience. That's what I get out of my head have this way, I get this little visual experience. And the experience is the way in which my eyes report to me how the world is. And my other senses work the same way. Um, I get these reports. Um, and what's happening in my hallucination, is you get the report, but there's no reality behind the report. In illusion, you get the report that it's misleading. Um, but all of my five senses uh, seem to operate via that sort of intermediate report. And in order for rational intuition to do its job, it's got to operate very differently there is no intermediary, there is no report, I get to just see, directly, the truth on uh, various facts about math and logic and morality, um, and again, I'm, I'm willing to admit that there is no logical inconsistency with saying, there is no God, but I have this sense that gives me direct access to truth of logic and um, morality, but there is a sort of incongruity or tension, it's sort of like um, I don't know if you've ever met an atheist who believes in parla.
2: There's no logical inconsistency there,
1: but if somebody says, I think that what goes around comes around and what you do tends nice to get returned to you, but also there's nobody running the show, it just happens. That's, a little, that's, that's sort of strange, right? And you wonder, oh, I was, that's not what I would expect if there was no rep. Um, and there's nobody running the formal shift. Why does it keep happening? Um, I think rational intuition is something like that. It's not what you would expect on an atheistic worldview. Or at least on some naturalistic worldview. It would be very surprising. And so, uh, let me say this. Um, although appealing to rational intuition may save you from the, this evolutionary evoking argument that you see, I think if you admit that rational intuition is not what you would expect, if atheism isn't true, not what you discussed, that doesn't true. Then at least there we've got an argument against if he's in the abuse of the makeup. We've got some surprising arguments against uh, if he's in the abuse of the makeup. So it's sort of a consolation prize for me. It's a backup argument against the person who's willing to endorse both of those things if he is an international. Okay. That's question. Okay. No.
2: Oh, okay. Oh, uh, yeah. okay. So, um, uh, my question kind of is around the, uh, the second point on the moral argument. Yeah. So, if so, uh, then I hold my belief, my, uh, I hold my moral beliefs because they're adapted, not because they're true. So, why is the fact that they are adapted not enough to make them true? Like, what is our working definition of truth here? So my working definition of truth is um, uh,
1: to say, well, it's sort of a thought Um, When you say it is the case, that it is the case, that's true. Um, And you say it's not the case, that it's not the case, that's also true. Um, So truth is just the way the world is. Yeah. So
2: that's that's kind of what I was going of Just uh, what is true is what is, right? Um, But those moral, those adaptive moral beliefs those are a part of what is, because we can agree that those exist. The beliefs. Yeah. It's true that the beliefs beliefs. exist. And we can agree that some moral beliefs, maybe not the truest foundational ones, but some are coming from this adaptive nature, and from this process, evolutionarily. So, because they are what is, and we can agree that they exist, and they are how the world is, why does that that not make them? Why is that
1: not justification? In the of itself? So he said, um, we agree that the moral beliefs exist, even if they came out of it, it's going to show The moral beliefs exist. So why isn't that enough to make the beliefs true? Yeah. I mean, there are many beliefs that exist that are not true. Like some people believe that the earth is flat, and that's not true. Even though the belief exists, that's not enough to show that it's true. Do
2: you want to try it? Yeah, let me say it a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as far as like that, the belief of the universe is black, that's the belief that exists. No. That obviously doesn't make it true. Yes. But that's because that's only. if you then ask why that is, you can kind of run down to something that true. If we're going with the evolutionary uh, adaptive beliefs, we can run down the evolutionary tree like why this is due, true to the evolution, why that is true, why that is true, without ever running into something that's false.
1: So, instead like of you're saying, like, if I describe to you the process of evolution and so I do so accurately, everything in the world that's said will be true. Yes. That's the case. Um, let me just, in the interest of time, let me just see if this is what you're asking. Are you asking that if um. the grants that I believe was adaptive, does, isn't that enough to guarantee that it's
2: true?
1: Is that? Because I'm going to give you can have an examples if we say yes to that. <laughs> there are lots of beliefs that are adaptive, but moral beliefs that are adapted to the whole. Um, that's a way the truth. Yeah. Hey, here's right, there maybe sometimes. Um That's something that's adapted for, that's a behavior that's adapted. But If humans did that, we think that was super immoral. I can mean, give you human examples of beliefs that we hold, moral beliefs that we hold, or at least that would pressure the whole by evolutionary forces. Um, but that would be think that actually immoral. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just give you one example of a quick and maybe we should go. Um, here's a recent evolutionary explanation I've third of why humans are sort of tribal and sort of xenophobic. the um, has to do did you hear this one? It has to do with like germs or something. And back in ancestral environments, we're so out with small groups of humans, and we all share germs with each other. If anyone came from another tribe, there was a serious risk that they would have germs that we hadn't encountered before, that might decimate us. I mean this is happening in history. And so it became adapt both to the individual level and the population level to become tribalistic and xenophobic, to be distrusting of people who aren't from around here and don't look like us. Okay, so that's an evolutionary explanation of why it might be advantageous to um, be tribalistic and xenophobic. That doesn't mean it's morally good to be tribalistic and xenophobic. And there are other ways in make But I think
2: I'll end there and thank you again for